You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 9, the verses 1 to 17. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Our text this morning is taken, first of all, from Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then we also have Matthew chapter 6, the verses 19 to 21. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. How can you tell? Well, first, there is the fact that the days are growing darker sooner, and the temperature at night is also going down. And second, there is the fact that the trees and the shrubs are starting to change or have changed color. Unfortunately, it's not like Ontario, where a riot of red, yellow, and Also, orange breaks out in the fall, but still there is evidence of change as the leaves discolor and begin to fall to the ground. Winter, you can know, you can just feel it in your bones, as it were, is coming. And then you, too, you can tell that Thanksgiving is here when you go up country and see the crop being harvested, as well as the corn and other things being gathered in. Truly, we have come to that time of year we have come to Thanksgiving time. And just kind of, what kind of a time is that? Well, it's, you can say, a time to reflect, to weigh, to ponder. And above all, it's a time, once again, as the name suggests, to give thanks. Especially it's a time to thank God for giving us another year in which we could plant, sow, and harvest Another year in which we could do our work and our business. Another year in which we could develop our talents and use our abilities. In so many ways, the Lord has been good to us once again. And in light of all of that, beloved, I would like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. Give thanks to God. We're going to first of all look at a lasting promise. Then we're going to look at a necessary warning, and finally we'll look as well at a surprising command. Well, beloved, many of you have adopted the habit of getting together around Thanksgiving Day as family and friends and sharing a special meal together. And often before or after that meal, a time is set aside for everyone to state what it is that they're thankful about. In other words, what special gift or blessing has God given to you in the year gone by? What are you thankful for? And you know that's appropriate. It's good to set aside a special time to do this. It's good, as it were, to verbalize our thanksgiving. It's also good sometimes to be specific. And as well, it's good to dig dig a little deeper and to ask some more questions. And then perhaps the basic question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, where did Thanksgiving really come from? Where did it originate? Does it come from the natives? Does it come from the pilgrim fathers? Where does it come from? 
Well, to answer that question, we can do no better, perhaps, than to turn to the end of Genesis chapter 8. You know, it's all about what happened after the great flood. Here, God had sent this massive amount of water, and it had annihilated everything and everyone. The only people whom God had spared were those eight people in the ark and the animals that were in it as well. All other human beings, all animals, all plants were destroyed. Wickedness was, as it were, erased. And only a few were saved. And what did those few do once the flood waters receded? Well, it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. In other words, Noah's first act, once he gets out of the ark, is an act of thanksgiving. He gives praise and thanks to the God who has rescued him and his family. He he lauds the God who has decided not to make a permanent end to mankind, but to spare a few and to begin over. And he magnifies the God who does not abandon the plan of salvation, but is moving towards that day when the Savior will defeat the devil, when the seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. Noah makes an altar, and Noah sacrifices on it, and he gives thanks to God. And notice, God notices We're told in verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. But God did more than smell. He also decided to make a promise. He decided that he would never again bring judgment on mankind in the form of a flood. He decided that he would never again in this way make an end to all living creatures. And instead, the Lord resorted to poetry. And he's recorded it for all mankind to read and take note of. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Now, beloved, what is that but a promise for all of creation? If you look closely, you see that first, the essential elements of day and night will remain. Second, the seasons will continue to come and to go. Third, the temperatures will fluctuate and make life livable for all. And fourth, there will always be seed time and harvest. In other words, there will always be a a time for planting and reaping. There will always be food. There will always be life. There will always be thanksgiving. Why can we get together this year and mark another Thanksgiving day? Is it purely a matter of luck? as so many would have us believe? Is it simply a matter of the automatic outworkings of the laws of nature? Is it because of some kind of unknown force or power that guides and governs everything? No, beloved. It's about God. Our God. This is about our God making a promise. 
A promise near the beginning of time. And about him keeping it ever since. And so also in 2010, there is ample evidence to prove that seed time and harvest are still real. You and I, together with our families, may sit down tomorrow or today and give thanks to God for his faithfulness, for his goodness, for his bounty. He has kept his word. And the proof is before you. It's in your refrigerators, it's on your tables, it's on your stoves, it's on your backs, it's in your clothes closets, it's on your driveways. It's in your bank accounts. And then, of course, you worked for this. It didn't fall like manna and quail out of the sky. You studied and you planned and you trained and you prepared and perhaps you even sweat for it. So you too can take a bow. But nevertheless, realize and realize well That if the Lord had not made that promise to Noah and all mankind ages ago, all of our efforts today would be for naught. It's God's promise that makes your life possible. It's God's promise that crowns your work. It's his love and compassion. That sustains your life. Thanksgiving 2010 is ultimately his doing. And so, beloved, you can say God both blesses and mandates our work. You and I live in a world where we can farm, build, do business, teach, nurse, and do 101 other things. And you and I can live in a world in which we can accumulate stuff. Oh, and we do. Especially in the more prosperous parts of the world, there is stuff everywhere. You can buy it on almost every street corner. Stores are plentiful. Shopping malls are the new cathedrals. Finding new disposal sites for all the things we don't want anymore are among society's most vexing problems. Just think about Cash Creek. And so we buy, buy, buy. Why we buy so much that we need garage sales to get rid of some of it. And we give thanks for Bibles, for Mission, Salvation Army, and Value Village stores so that we know where We can go if we no longer need something. And we rejoice in the same stores as well as on Craigslist because now we know where we can find new and more bargains. The pursuit of stuff has become a national pastime. It's like an obsession. And you know, if you think of it, that's not just silly, it's downright stupid. How dare I say that? 
Well, beloved, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has told us. Take a closer look at our second text. What does the Lord Jesus say? What does he say is an utterly useless exercise? Listen. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And why not? Because that's where moth and rust destroy. Or you can say that's where thieves steal. And I know all about that. You know, around Father's Day, my children and grandchildren gave me some money to go out and buy a new self-propelled lawnmower. And so in due time, I bought this bright, red, shiny, Toro lawnmower for a really good price. And was I proud? But then, lo and behold, I used it twice, and it was gone. Someone came along and stole it right out of my garage. So now I'm back to using my old lawnmower, the kind that I really, really have to push. And every time I mow my lawn, I am reminded about the fact that there are moths and rust and thieves out there. So don't even bother to store up treasures on earth. It's no use setting your heart on stuff. It's a misguided pursuit. So, what then? What are we supposed to do? Well, the Lord gives us a far better alternative. Namely, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And why there? Well, because he says moth and rust aren't present there. And and because there the thieves don't break in and they don't steal. So what we really need to do is to make our deposits in the bank of heaven. It's the only really secure place. Forget about the royal bank. Canada Trust, CIBC, HSBC, all the rest. Forget about savings bonds, RSPs, and gold. Only heavenly deposits last and grow and give you real compound interest. Do you want to be a millionaire? Then you need to make your deposits in the bank of heaven. But how do we do that? Some of you do internet banking, but you won't be able to transfer any of your funds to the bank of heaven. And why not? Well, because, not because it doesn't exist, simply because it's a totally different kind of bank. It doesn't deal in stocks and bonds and mutual funds and money, but rather you can say this is the bank that deals in faith and works. Now what does that mean? 
It means that in order to be a shareholder, a partner in the bank of heaven, you need to place your hope and trust and confidence in God. Someone who does his or her banking at this branch knows that it's about believing in God, the Father who creates us and adopts us. It's all about believing in God, the Son, who saves us and redeems us. It's all about believing in God, the Spirit, who renews and preserves us. Someone who does business with a triune God knows that life is not about trusting in yourself and in your own abilities. It's about God and placing all of your hope and your confidence in Him. Yes, and someone who does this also knows that it's not really about money and stuff at all. It's about deeds. For how does one store up treasures in heaven? How does one grow his heavenly bank account? One does it through faith. And the kind of life one lives. One does it by seeing and using money and stuff in a a stewardly manner. What you earn and make and gain in this world is not really yours at all. You don't get to keep it forever. No, it's on loan to you for a little while. And you get to use it, and you get to work with it, and to benefit from it, and even to enjoy it. But there will come a day when it all will revert back to God, to the ultimate owner. Yes, and there will also come a day when God will ask you, what did you do with all the money and all the stuff? That I gave you. Just what kind of a steward were you? Were you the kind that operates on the principle of first fruits? In other words, the first and the best goes to God, not the last and the least. Does God's church have to go begging while you go cruising? How would you fare if you had a heavenly audit? And as well, are you the kind of steward who realizes that money is a tool, an instrument, a means to do good? To help the poor? And to raise up the downtrodden? You may know, money is sometimes called mammon in the Bible. And that really means that money is a god. And many, many people worship at its altar. Do you? You know, our Lord Jesus Christ warned, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Being rich... And being a good steward 
is a tough, tough challenge. A lot of people don't make it. Only if you really understand and implement the principles of true biblical thanksgiving, namely faith in God and works for God and your neighbor, will you make it? And one day hear the accolade, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But then, beloved, if there is a promise and a danger attached to thanksgiving, there's also something else, something also kind of unusual, and that is there is a command connected to it. You find it in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in a rather pithy statement made by the Apostle Paul, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What the Apostle Paul is led to pen here also, of course, has to do with Thanksgiving Day. For what he does is remind the believers in Thessalonica and elsewhere that this particular matter of Thanksgiving should not be limited or restricted or confined in any way. You might say the Apostle Paul is warning against a natural human tendency. And the tendency is surely this, to give thanks only when you get. In other words, thanksgiving comes naturally to us when we are the receiving end of money, a job, a healthy bank account, a car without payments, a house without a mortgage, a loaded investment portfolio for the future. In other words, thanksgiving is only appropriate for good times. When everything's smelling like the roses. Sometimes we think the same way about our health. When are most people thankful? Not just when they have stuff but also when they have the health and the ability to enjoy it. In short, our world teaches us and our hearts tell us that that thanksgiving is really only appropriate for when we are doing well, materially and physically well. My beloved, that's not the way the scriptures see it at all. And that's because that's not the way that God sees it either. Because God says to us, thanksgiving really is appropriate for every day. In all of life's many and varied circumstances and situations, thanksgiving is fitting even whether you're sick or healthy, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're free or slave, whether you're working or unemployed. Thanksgiving is always right. And of course you might wonder, well, is that natural? Does this make sense? Can this be easily done? 
And the answer to all of those questions is no. You know, to live this kind of a way and to have this kind of an attitude requires the help of God's Holy Spirit. Only He can enable us to give thanks even amidst the tears and the heartaches of this life. You can be sure it was the Holy Spirit who took a much persecuted, often suffering apostle like Paul. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians. And who yet empowered him to live a thankful life every day. Well, this is something that the Spirit has been doing throughout the ages. He's been making Christians thankful. Even in the most terrible of circumstances. And how does he do that? Well, you might say he does it by helping us to live our lives on the basis of two principles. The first principle is this. And it comes from Romans 8, verse 28. God works for the good of those who love him. You might call it the goodness principle. And what it means is that the children of God are not exempt from suffering and setbacks, from illness and handicap, even from death and decay. Believers are not spared the ugly realities that come along with living in a broken world. God never promised you an oasis in the midst of this life. Nowhere does he say you're always going to be healthy and wealthy if you're a Christian. So what does he promise? He promises you that no matter what, when trials come your way, you'll never ever have to deal with them alone. For he will always travel with you. And he promises us as well that our blessings and our gifts from him will always be more than our sufferings and our setbacks. No matter how life beats up on you, God's gifts are greater. And finally, he promises you that someday, somehow, in some way, you'll look back on what he has led you through and you will declare one thing. It was good. You see, beloved, goodness. Goodness for us who believe is the bottom line. No child of God will ever be able to say or to complain to the Lord, Lord, you robbed me, you deprived me, you mistreated me, you shortchanged me. You gave me a rotten life. Now a day is coming when all of God's children will confess his goodness and see his goodness and taste 
his goodness as well. And so the first principle, beloved, you and I need to hang on to is the goodness principle. The second principle that you and I need to hang on to and that the Holy Spirit uses is the eternity principle. Paul writes a lot about that in his letters. He loves to dwell on the fact that we will inherit an eternal weight of glory. On the fact that we have an eternal house in heaven not made by human hands. On the fact that we are being renewed day by day. On the fact that only truly what is unseen is eternal. And you know, whenever the Apostle Paul writes that way, he's trying to counteract our short-sightedness. We live life so poorly because we often don't see beyond our noses and into eternity. We assume that life can be captured by living on this broken planet for 70, 80, 90 years or maybe shorter or longer. And we glue our eyes on earthly pleasures and make them the be-all and the end-all of everything. We're so earthbound, we're so time-constrained, we're so narrow-sighted. And that's why the Holy Spirit tells the Apostle Paul from God, turn thanksgiving into a command, an imperative. Teach my people that no matter what happens to them or in their life, They have reason to be thankful. Notice he writes, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want a long-faced people. He doesn't want a grumbling people. He had enough of that in the Old Testament. He doesn't want a people who are always majoring in the negatives. He wants a people who are confident and bold, thankful and grateful. A people who know what they have received in and through Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Because ultimately He has saved us and redeemed us, liberated us, and I don't think it's an English word, but eternalized us. And with Him and through Him, We have a future. And that future is going to be filled with goodness and glory, with benefits and blessing, with peace and potential, and with life. Indescribable, delicious, perfect life. So, beloved, give thanks to God. Give thanks to Him every day, in all circumstances. Give thanks to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.